I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. As the Associate Attorney General of the United States, Benita Gupta is the third highest-ranking official at the Department of Justice, and I had a chance to talk with her as part of the Washington Post Live's ongoing series, Protecting Public Safety. In this conversation, first recorded on June 28th, Gupta talked about a range of issues, from what DOJ is doing to help police departments fight violent crime, to the impact of the Supreme Court's decisions related to guns and abortion. But Gupta was most passionate when talking about what it will take to defend our democracy. Despair is the enemy of justice. We can't sit around and hope that democracy will just protect itself or that it's an inevitable system that is centering our country. Our democracy has always required work. It has never been perfect. I should have asked you in the back, what's the formal second reference? Do I call you General oh, Gupta? Just call me Vinita. So stop, stop. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, Vinita. <laughs> All right, Vinita. Um, before we get to the Supreme Court case that could have a major impact on public safety, we have to talk about um, the high court's repeal of Roe versus Wade. Attorney General Merrick Garland came out quickly with a, um, a, a statement against the decision saying that the court eliminated an established right essential to women's liberty. What can the department do to blunt the impact of the loss of, a, of this constitutional right? Well, let me just start by saying that the decision is absolutely devastating. Uh, and uh, I have worked on these issues a very long time uh, on um, protecting reproductive freedom and women's access to abortion, among other civil rights issues. And as much as we knew that the leaked opinion was out there, um, nothing quite prepared me, as I think nothing quite prepared many of us for the gut punch that happened on Friday when the opinion actually came down. Um, uh, removing a constitutional right that has been so core to women's liberty and, and freedom um, for 50 years. And so the attorney general did come out with a statement. It was much longer than most statements uh, he issues or that the department issues. And he did that very intentionally, uh, not just to express strong uh, disagreement and disappointment, to say the very least, about the Supreme Court's decision, but also to describe all of the areas that are of intense focus for the department. Um, we are uh, going to look at every available tool uh, using all of the tools that we have. And he listed out what some of those issues are and the areas are, you know, including abortion medication, interstate travel and the like. Um, and, uh, but the reality is while all of these areas are very important and we are going to fight every day uh, uh, to, to protect reproductive freedom around the country. Uh, we, our tools are not the same as Congress's and Congress's ability to pass a law, and we continue to call on Congress to enact legislation that will uh, protect uh, the right and access to abortion for people who need it. Um, but we will fight every day to do everything we can using the enforcement tools and other tools that we have um, in this area. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, you mentioned how the press release in reaction to the Dobbs decision was much longer and more detailed than the department or the attorney general usually puts out. Because I noticed that. Because the department's press release after the gun decision was handed down was decidedly shorter than the one for Dobbs. How much more difficult will repeal of New York's 108-year-old gun law make safeguarding public safety, especially 
in densely populated cities like New York. So just the day before, uh, the department did issue a statement um, expressing deep disappointment with the Bruin decision, the gun decision that you mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, the view is that it is dangerous for public safety uh, and that the department is going to continue to um, push forward using all of the tools that we have to combat gun violence in our communities. We issued a ghost gun rule. We've been um, working with our law enforcement partners to ensure that we can do everything we can to take illegal guns off the street. Uh, but though the, the statement may have been a little bit shorter, um, the concern about the impact of that decision uh, is, um, is no less strenuous than um, in Dobbs. And we are just going to work with our state and local partners around the country to do what we have been doing over the last couple of years to fight the scourge of, of gun violence in our communities. And I'm going to get into that in a moment, but I'm, I'm wondering, will the court's decision hinder efforts at the local level to tackle violent gun-related crime? Um, I think, you know, the answer is yes. You heard it from uh, Chief Harrison in Baltimore, who talked very concretely about the impact of that decision. I'm from Keith Ellison in, in Minnesota about the impact of that decision. Uh, it makes the jobs of police chiefs that much harder. There's no question about it. And so um, we are, all of the work that we do to combat the epidemic of gun violence really does happen in partnership between the feds state and locals, and we have been um, fighting this epidemic for the last couple of years using the tools that we have, but there's no question and we can't deny that that type of decision is going to make this job and this work that much harder. And of course, coming after the country has been reeling from some acts of mass violence in Buffalo and Uvalde, um, really struggling with these issues. Uh, about how can we combat what have become almost commonplace acts of horrific uh, violence, and um, and so we are very focused on that. And uh, but there, you know, we can't we can't blunt the the impact of that decision. And I want to get to since you mentioned Baltimore, get to Baltimore in one second. But I have to ask you just one more thing broadly about the, the, the gun decision. Justice Clarence Thomas argues in that majority opinion that there is a constitutional to carry a weapon in public for quote ordinary self-defense. Isn't that standard in the eye of, eye of the beholder? Well, we, you know, in the short statement that we issued, we said, uh, the department said that we disagree with the court's um, reading of the Second Amendment as prohibiting New York's very reasonable requirement. Uh, and so we continue to stand by that position. And I think there's a lot of um, concerns right now about you know, what is in the eye of the beholder or not, but this is a decision that's been issued by the Supreme Court, and now we'll see what state legislatures do in response. Um, and I forgot to mention, if you have a question, a burning question for uh, the Associate Attorney General, please uh, tweet them at Post Live, I believe is the, is the Twitter, Twitter handle. Um, so let's talk more about Baltimore, because the city of Baltimore has done extensive work since the death of Freddie Gray in 2015. How did your work as the head of the Civil Rights Division and your work on the consent decree in Baltimore influence your overall approach to working with police? You know, when, um, I, when I entered the Justice Department, which was October of 2014, it was a time when the country was in some parts literally on fire around um, uh, police, racial justice, public safety, violence. Uh, and uh, Darren, uh, you know, there had been the, the Ferguson Police Department, the Justice Department had just opened up in its investigation when I came in. And every week that I was on the job for just under two and a half years as head of 
the civil rights division during that time, it was as though there was a new video, uh, viral video um, of uh, officer-involved shooting or police-related violence. And when Freddie Gray was killed in police custody, uh, there was massive unrest, violence also in, in Baltimore, and the Justice Department at that time had been engaged in the city through a collaborative reform initiative um, to work on kind of collaborative uh, reform with the Baltimore Police Department. And the community had just lost faith in, in that as a response. And so uh, it was Loretta Lynch's first day on the job as Attorney General, and she sent uh, myself and Ron Davis, um, who was then head of the uh, Office of Community-Oriented Policing, up to Baltimore. And we met with Freddie Gray's family, with police officers who had had bricks thrown at their head uh, the night before during the unrest. We met with um, leaders, community leaders, residents from all over. And what was so profound about the days that we spent in Baltimore in that early period was that there were entire blocks in the city that um, and, and neighborhoods that were literally refusing to cooperate with the police. Um, they were so you didn't have witnesses reporting, uh, you know, what they had seen. You didn't have victims reporting crimes to the police. There was really a sense that law enforcement in certain parts of the community was the enemy and that it was having a very concrete impact. This was not academic. This was direct impact on the ability of the Baltimore Police Department to have the trust and legitimacy in that community and to be able to solve crimes in the community. Uh, and so we opened a pattern of practice investigation, but I, we did it um, with a little differently maybe than sometimes how the Justice Department had been seen as doing it. The Baltimore FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union um, in Baltimore, um, I met with uh, a fair bit in those early days, and I invited them over to the, to the Civil Rights Division. They had done a report, actually, the year prior, talking about how city policies and decisions made by local elected officials had created these arrest quotas in the city and had resulted in racially disproportionate arrests uh, had eroded the trust uh, between the police department and community residents. And, um, and we're saying, look, we are enforcing these decisions that have been made by politicians, and now we are you know, where we are in the city vis-a-vis -vis being able to solve crime. And I say that because I think it's an important dimension when we talk about violent crime and we talk about needing to fight gun violence and fight violent crime, one of the key things that we've done at this Justice Department is understand just how much police community trust is at the heart of being able to fight violent crime. And we've, we've been in a consent decree now for five years in Baltimore. Um, Commissioner Harrison has been absolutely tremendous uh, as a leader, and community residents have really stuck with it, but it takes time. And some would say five years is too long. But there have been really important and significant changes in Baltimore. And I always say, and it was the quote that you saw on the screen, that change doesn't happen overnight. And the stuff takes a lot of work. You can have a bunch of changes of policy, but culture eats policy for lunch uh, without the kind of sustained commitment to work on these issues over the long haul. Can you talk about um, the, the Knowledge Lab? This is something that you, re you recently la launched at DOJ. So, um, I was actually surprised, frankly, that the Justice Department didn't have something like the Knowledge Lab. The Knowledge Lab is a very basic idea. Uh, it is the idea that with all of the Justice Department's consent decrees over time, 
with all of the research that we fund and that we do, with the work that has been done by, uh, by the International Association of Chiefs of Police and, and the like, we didn't have and haven't had a central clearinghouse to really uh, be able to promote best practices in constitutional policing and a one-stop shop that if you're a mayor in a city that's having a particular problem or you're a police chief or you're a civil rights activist and you wanna know what is the state of the art use of force policy that I should be pushing for, where do I go? Do I look at all of DOJ's consent decrees one by one? So this, what we did this year is launch this knowledge lab which creates this one-stop shop for anyone to take a look and, and be able to access the tremendous amount of learning, data-driven, evidence-based learning that we have on policing, and to be able to make those changes um, ourselves. Justice Department, you'll be surprised, maybe some of you, that we only have 15 consent decrees right now that are active around the country. We are a nation of 18,000 police departments. There is no way that this one tool, important though it is, is going to transform policing and build community trust in, all over the country. And so what is it that the Justice Department can do to make sure that people have the tools that they need to push for those changes? I remember after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, there was this massive push around the, the country to say body-worn cameras were gonna be the silver bullet solution. Um, and it, it wasn't because they aren't important, but there's a lack of maybe enough transparency or understanding of how policing works in communities. And the Knowledge Lab really is to be able to arm people with the types of things that um, can have made proven differences in, in police departments and police community relations around. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Country. Resistant are police departments around uh, that the Justice Department goes into consent decrees with? How resistant are they to change or the changes that need to be made in order for them to be better? You know, I, um, I think the country has come a long way. I'm not going to be Pollyanna about it, but I also think that there's been tremendous law enforcement leadership that has recognized that. Departments sometimes are one critical incident or violent act away from uh, being kind of hitting rock bottom. And that there's a lot of appetite among law enforcement leaders to do what we can to proactively prevent these types of problems and situations from coming to be in the long haul. There, you know, I, I have found that when we've tended to open these pattern practice investigations more recently, it's often with the support now of the mayor and the police chief. 
Um, and it may be through some a little bit of conjoling and convincing, but to be able to see what the long-term benefits are of having this outside tool that kind of can sometimes force political will, force budgets to invest in constitutional policing and the like, force elected officials to pay attention in this way. And so we have found that we are more kind of welcome in by the jurisdictions. But I also think, as I said, we are touching a fraction of police departments if we are only relying on this one tool, which is why you know, we built out the Knowledge Lab. Uh, a few months ago, the Attorney General announced the relaunch of our collaborative reform initiative that um, provides, there's one part of it that provides technical assistance to, we've done it, and I think now at about 500 police departments around the country through our technical assistance center. We um, relaunched our critical response review program, which is our program that is a part of collaborative reform that we are now using in Uvalde. Um, I think you, some of you may have heard that we are conducting a review of the police response that day and in the aftermath, um, not only to provide an independent accounting of what happened, there have been a lot, and every day there are new facts that seem to be emerging about that horrific day, um, but also to understand what are the lessons learned and what are best practices that we can push out to the field moving forward. And these are the types of things, if we can expand the spectrum of support and work and technical assistance and research and funding, even outside of this pattern practice tool, which is a very limited tool, we are going to be able to reach a lot more departments this way. And you know, law enforcement leadership has really, uh, has really welcomed all of these kinds of tools um, that are so important to be able to, to move policing forward in this country. Let me pick up on what you were just talking about with Uvalde, because I think when people hear that the Department of Justice is looking into something, that there's an expectation that the Department of Justice is going to hold at the, at the end of the review or whatever the department is doing, that it is going to hold someone accountable. And in Uvalde, we have seen day after day after day new revelations that are more horrifying than the next about um, all sorts of things that didn't actually happen, all sorts of things that should have happened but didn't. Um, and I think the nation is still sort of reeling from the notion that there were law enforcement there that could have done something but didn't. So with, with DOJ looking into what's, what happened at Uvalde, should the public have the expectation that the DOJ is going to hold someone or something, an entity, accountable for what happened? So with this review, I want to be clear, this is not a criminal investigation. Obviously, the department has criminal investigative authority, uh, and we use uh, our, you know, we prosecute officers for violating um, the law when, when that happens. Um, uh, but this is a after action review, which is another tool that the department has. And the goal of this is in part because of these conflicting facts. I mean, I can't, I'm the mother of a 10 and 13 year old. I cannot imagine the kind of additive pain and devastation of parents who are learning different facts every day that's just compounding what they've experienced in Uvalde. And so to be able to provide a definitive accounting, we've got a team on the ground there this week, um, uh, and, and 
it is going to take us time to do this review. Uh, we're going to be looking at everything, at, at video, at the, we're going to reconstruct the timeline. We're going to you know, understand all of the security measures, the training and the lead up, what happened during the incident, the victim services and family communication and the whole thing. Um, and that is to provide this definitive independent accounting. It is not a criminal investigation. The district attorney, as I understand it, um, from reading media reports, is conducting a, a criminal investigation. Um, but we will take all the facts and we will publish what we find um, transparently to the to the public, uh, and um, and then we'll go from there. Um, you talked earlier about community trust uh, between the community and and the police. And in the conversation between DeRay McKesson and Art Acevedo, you could see that tension uh, on this stage, even though behind, you know, once they got behind there, they're actually very friendly with each other. But when it comes to that relationship between the community and the police, the tension is real. Uh, and the idea that folks in a lot of jurisdictions feel that they can't trust the police. So, and I know you say that it takes time but can you give um, a couple of examples, or maybe j just one, because I want to get you on something else before we run out of time, of how trust has been reestablished between police and community? Yeah, I, um, I don't think it is as, I think in certain places when incidents happen, the kind of breakdown of trust can be so monumental that people literally are not speaking to each other and there's kind of mutual demonization. And I think that's bad for public safety. It's bad for our communities. Uh, and, but I also think that it would be a mistake to say that you know, things are rock bottom in, in communities that are majority you know, community of color. And that is not what I experience at the Justice Department. I've been a lifelong civil rights lawyer. Uh, I have seen people in communities, community activists and residents really push the police um, uh, on you know, transparency and accountability and, and all of that. But the thing that I found really interesting about the post-George Floyd moment and kind of the, the period of time that's followed, even in the summer of 2020, when there were massive protests around on the street, the thing that I thought was so interesting is so many people, community residents and civil rights activists, actually had a lot of agreement with law enforcement and police officers and police executives around the fact that for so long we have put so many social problems at the feet of police and expected law enforcement to solve for them. While not appropriately investing community-based responses for mental health and uh, drug use disorders and the like. And you'll talk to law enforcement, they talk about this all the time, uh, and that they have been saddled with these significant social problems, and that this, this desire to kind of come together to figure this out and to recognize that we aren't going to solve the problems of police violence or police community trust just by looking at the police alone, that this has got to be a shared responsibility with healthcare systems, with our elected officials who are setting local policy on uh, school, on, on, on education policy and employment policy and the like, and that this need to really see these issues as, as through a more holistic lens than what we've done for decades, which is really treating everything as a criminal justice problem, to recognize the greater responsibility and the shared responsibility. And I will say, just if I use one example, I know you told me to, to say one. You heard this panel on community violence intervention. Um, 
that the need to understand that there's a shared responsibility in a way that we can tackle violent crime, actually by investing in local community leaders who have the experience, the credibility, the legitimacy, who know their block, house to house, apartment to apartment, who can actually intervene in people's lives who may be at the greatest risk of violence or have been the greatest exposure to violence and be able to have them be partners with law enforcement um, to, to, to solve violent crime. This is a really important strategy. If we just use the strategies from 30 years ago, we will be no better off than where we are today. And part of what we are doing through the Knowledge Lab, through, um, through the, the Collaborative Reform Initiative, through our pattern practice investigations, is really kind of understanding the, the fundamental role that communities play in protecting and co-creating and defining what public safety looks like. And, and, and that this can't just be all at the feet of police. We will make that mistake all over again. Um, last question, because we've got a little more than two, two minutes left. And this is not meant to be a political question. This is meant to be a, a philosophical question. So the time has run out, and so we're going to call Given, this quits now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Given the Dobbs decision and Justice Thomas uh, saying you know, that due process rights established in Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell should be reconsidered, how worried are you that public confidence in, in the Supreme Court is eroding? And I ask that question because I'm wondering if the Department of Justice, can the Department of Justice do its job if people lose faith in the judiciary writ large? So I'm actually going to zoom out your question even more broadly. That wasn't zoomed out? Which is... Um, I am very worried about people's faith in institutions and in our democracy. Um, I think that, you know, we have a democracy that is almost in crisis. We have levels of polarization that is so profound, um, and that the the kind of increasing distrust of institutions. I'm an institutionalist. I also believe in incremental reform. I am an idealist, but I'm very practical, and I. I see what's happening in people's faith in institutions to bring about change or to stand for the rule of law, to stand for democratic norms that are now being challenged. Um, and I think that this is the great challenge of our day right now. Uh, and how do people continue to have faith in our country's ideals and that institutions will help anchor these ideals even in the hardest of times? And what I say to that is, our country has been through a lot. And I think that it is easy to see the crisis that we may be in today and to just kind of, you know, want to climb into a sinkhole and, and call it quits. But I think that despair is the enemy of justice and that there is the things that have gotten this country through slavery, through Jim Crow, through some of the greatest challenges of our day have always been that good people, men, women, especially young people, refuse to accept the status quo and are going to continue to fight every day for the kind of country we want to be. And that is the only thing that will make a difference. We can't sit around and hope that democracy will just protect itself or that it's an inevitable system that is centering our country. Our democracy has always required work. It has never been perfect. Uh, and 
that the thing that is, as I said, always made a difference is that people of good conscience have refused to sit back, get on the sidelines, hide under a sofa, even though there are some days where I want to do that, um, and have said we, were, we are going to fight for this beautiful country and for the people and values that we hold dear. And uh, it's why I'm at the Justice Department. It's why I've committed my life to public service. But I hope that people will really hold on to that because it's real. Vanita Gupta, Associate Attorney General of the United States, thank you very much you. for coming to The Washington Post. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.